You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Well, good morning. Ah, come on, it's beautiful out there. The only way it could get any better is if it was plus 30. But, but it's sunny, it's nice, and we're on the last Sunday of 2017 on the cusp of t- another year, 2018. And we're starting this new series, as, as Matt mentioned, a five-week series called Goliath Must Fall, uh, dealing with anger, rejection, even the sneaky giant of comfort that lulls us to sleep, and maybe so we don't live our God-given potential out. But today we're going to talk about the giant of fear, and fear that keeps us from moving into what God has for us, fear that uh, inevitably will be the response to some of the things that may happen to us in 2018. But before we jump into it, let me mention that in our resource center, immediately following our gathering, you can pick up a copy of the book, Goliath Must Fall, a great companion to this series that will help all of us in this room, any of us who are able to read the book along with the series, make some traction in our life going into 2018. So speaking of 2018... What are you expecting? (laughs) Not much, obviously. (laughs) Listen, hey, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit like 2017 and 2016 and 2015 in this much. I hope it's better than what you've experienced, but you're likely going to have some setbacks. You're going to have some really good moments probably in 2018. You're probably going to have some moments that might invoke some fear, that fear would be the only logical response to some of the things that might be facing us in 2018. Uh, Regardless of what 2018 holds for us, we want to talk today about fear and how fear must fall. The giants of fear. Now, the Bible talks a lot about fear. Over 366 times, someone did the math on it and counted it. 366 times it says, do not be afraid, or it says, fear not. And it's always in the form of a command in the scripture to not be afraid and not uh, to, to, to fear not. And the difficulty with that is if you're struggling with fear and anxiety, that's not helpful. <laughs> it's not always helpful to hear someone says, well, hey, just stop being afraid, right? You're scared? Well, just stop it. It doesn't work quite that way. But why it's mentioned in Scripture, and isn't it interesting, it's 366 days. That's one command for every day of the year, plus the leap years included. Uh, It's there, and it's saying, fear not, do not be afraid. And the reason why it keeps reminding us of that is God knew we'd face fears. He knew that fear would be one of the most immobilizing aspects of our life. Here's how fear works. Fear and anxiety actually do what I call a bit of a dance. Uh, At some points, anxiety takes the lead, and anxiety can cause fear, and at other times, fear can cause anxiety. Fear is a a threat, uh, an imminent, either it's a real or perceived threat that is immediate. And the natural response to fear, it's like if you're going through the woods and someone jumps out and says, ah, what do you do? Well, you're not thinking in that moment, you're responding. With fear, we respond. It's not so much a rational response. Instead, there's a stress response. It's called fight or flight. And so neurologists will say that's the limbic part of our brains at work. 
And the limbic part, or the lizard part of our brains, is the ancient part of our brains, let neurologists say, that cause us to either fight or flight in response to an immediate or perceived threat. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's how fear and anxiety work together. Neurologists say we have something called a limbic memory. So we're walking through the woods, and we, someone jumps out from behind a bush and scares us one day. And we, we do fight or flight, right? Well, now every time we walk through the woods, though, we f- experience an anxiety. Because anxiety deals in possibilities, that there always is a possible threat. Fe- it's different than fear, but because of our limbic memories, we tend to have a connection between fear and anxiety, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's demobilizing. It, it really robs us of joy in life. It keeps us from experiencing things in life. Like, ask yourself this question. What, if fear hadn't been a barrier, what would you have done you wish you had done? What, what does anxiety do to keep us from becoming what God wants us to be? As we lean into 2018, how do we handle this dance between anxiety? And anxiety, when it gets really negative, it puts us in a place of great despair and helplessness. A place where, at the very least, you have those knots in your stomach, butterflies in your stomach. But at some points, it feels like despair because it's always, there's a possibility of a threat yet to come. So worry and anxiety and fear all work together. Now, before we jump in, let me just say, if your anxiety and your fear or your worry has become unmanageable, you need to consult a healthcare professional. You really do. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. But I, I want to say that because I've had many great friends and family members who have struggled with anxiety, and it's been demobilizing. It, it's become unmanageable, and they sought help and they have moved on in life with great joy. Now, I say that, too, in a spiritual context, because some people over-spiritualize things that are actually physiological in nature. And so seeing a doctor uh, or others that help you manage that is really key and important, and I think I'd be negligent not to mention that today. But when we're talking about the giant of fear and confronting it in 2018, I'm going to give you the context for 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we're going to be reading from today. But before we do this, I have a guiding principle and thought for this entire message. I'd love you to say it out loud with me together. Would you, are, you, are you ready to do that? Yeah, because it's sunny out there, right? It's a good day out there. So, so, so we can do this together. Let's say it together. It is impossible to be fearless but it is possible to fear less. Now, when I say it's impossible to be fearless, that flies in the face of what we want. We admire in our culture people that we perceive to be fearless. I mean, they're taking the mountains. These are the people that are confronting the giants of fear and anxiety or whatever there might be in their life, and they seem to be cutting them down to size. But here's the problem with that whole narrative. To be fearless in life, we know as adults in this room that some fear can be very helpful. We know, ask yourself this, has there been fear in your life sometimes that prevented you from making some very bad decisions that could have harmed you in life? 
Sometimes it's even fear that keeps us from involving ourselves with certain people that might harm us in life. Fear can be a very helpful tool in many ways. The goal is not to be fearless in life because really that's to be out of touch with reality. And I'll show you that in a moment. But how can we move into 2018 and fear less? Fear less so that fear is not a controlling element in our life, that the giant of fear doesn't keep us from being all that we can be and experiencing all that God has for us. So let's go back to the 11th century BC. You ready to go? Now here's what's difficult, because I want to show you a little bit of what David's life was like. It's hard for us to imagine in modern Canada in 2017 what an ancient life and the fear that would have faced David in those days. See, it's hard for us to imagine what ancient warfare looked like. And the story we're going to talk about in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is just that. It's ancient warfare happening right in front of us. Now, we have Hollywood, and Hollywood tries to do a great job representing what this ancient culture and warfare looked like, but they can't capture it because they can't get, capture the smell of it. They can't capture the fear of it. Ancient warfare and modern warfare looks very different. We see modern warfare through a drone, through a helicopter, <laughs> through the lens of a camera. In ancient warfare, uh, you were within an arm's length of the person that you as your opponent. Uh, we kill from a distance in modern warfare. In ancient warfare, you kill from an arm's length. You saw the battle from over the, over the top of your shield. You, you could see the person's eyes who was your opponent. You could see fear in their eyes. You could see terror in their eyes. You could see, you could smell their breath. You'd know what they had to drink or eat that day. You're that close to them in battle. Uh, one of the worst things you could do in ancient battle is when you came up against your opponent and you saw calm. Because if you saw calmness, you know you were facing a professional. A professional killer, a man killer, a veteran. And unless you were a veteran of the shield wall, you were likely not to walk away from that unscathed. Here's in, in these ancient scenes and these battles, as you look at the historians, as they talk about what it looked like, it was pretty ugly stuff, friends. Uh, you, you wouldn't even recognize maybe some of the, uh, the, the punishment your body had actually taken on because of the adrenaline rush in that moment. But after the battle, you tried to distinguish between the blood that was yours and the blood that was your opponent's that was all over you. And if you could stop the bleeding, if you were cut, if you could stop the bleeding, it would be likely that you would have an infection within two weeks. There was no antibiotics then. And many people died. That's why in ancient warfare, sometimes you'll see this. Maybe if, you're, uh, if you love history, I'm a bit of a history buff. I kind of like it. But every once in a while, you'll see the Greco-Roman Empire, uh, especially the Grecian Empire, that sometimes they would fight with the men would with almost no clothes on. And the reason being is they learned that a puncture wound caused infections. And they didn't understand the world of infections then, but they realized people would lose limbs or their lives from this. So it's a pretty ugly world. Now, if you died on the field, the possibility of someone retrieving your body and, and putting it in, uh, in, a, in a grave was low because the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would come and comb the battlefield. How's that for an introduction? 
Isn't this jolly? 2018? Why I'm, I'm setting that stage is I want you to understand the world that David lived in. I want you to understand a little bit the background and the narrative when he encounters Goliath on this battlefield. This is pretty ugly stuff. This is not sanitized. When we think of ancient warfare, we sanitize it, we glamorize it, we even romanticize it. Because it's, it's the brave heart moments. Freedom! It's those moments, but it was pretty ugly. It was very intimate, and it was very destructive. That's the background to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's pick up the narrative and let's see where it takes us. Now the Philistines, and these are the perennial uh, uh, adversaries of the Israelites, gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah and Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied the hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. This was typical, or armed forces in that day would try to get the high ground. It's the same today, and they would often meet in the valley below. A champion, now that's an important word, friend. A champion means this man had a record. This man has a history. This man is a veteran. This man is someone who has won many times in battle. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now that's an ancient metric, and depending on the historian, uh, the way they look at it, it means uh, some believe he was about eight feet tall. Some believe that he was about nine and a half feet tall. Can we just agree that he was tall? I mean, that's, that's a big man. That's a big man. A champion named Goliath. He's that tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. He has 125 pounds of armor just on his body here. Goes on to say this. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Now Saul is the first king of Israel. He's an interesting man. See, the the nation of Israel was meant to be a theocracy. The king was supposed to be God. But they wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted to have their own king. So they have this man named Saul. I'll tell you a bit more about him in a moment. But they placed their hope in the man over their God. And he's in charge. Goes on to say, choose a man this is Goliath speaking, and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing that, the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. There's so much going on in this text. So much going on in this narrative, this story, getting unpacked here. Uh, here's what happened. Every day, it was morning and evening, Goliath would come out for 40 straight days. First thing in the morning, he came out and defied them and taunted them. Send me a champion. And then just before they go to bed, he comes to the field in the valley below again, and his voice bellows 
And he says, send us a champion. And that's how the giant of fear works in our life. He's unrelenting and never takes the day off. Never takes a day off. Comes at often our weakest moments, even in the evening hours when everything feels out of perspective. And it comes and shouts. And here's the interesting thing. Saul was in his tent and his men are waiting for 40 days for Saul to put on his armor and go down into that valley and take on that giant. And every day that that shout came, every day that they were taunted and every day they didn't do this, hope began to leave that camp. Now, why was Saul the one expected to go down and challenge Goliath? Well, it's interesting when you read about Saul, it says Saul was chosen to be king of Israel, the first one. They put their hope in him because, largely because he was handsome and he was head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. So in other words, he may not be Goliath tall, but he's the best they've got. He's the best the Israelites have. He's the best, most notable. When people saw Saul, they would say, well, if there ever was a champion in Israel, it's got to be this man. Look at this man's physique. But Saul, Saul stayed in the tent for 40 days. Man, fear has a way of immobilizing us. Fear has a way of keeping us living a small life shut up in our tent. Fear is a way of keeping us from all the good things that God has for us as we look forward. Hope was leaving them. The, this whole story has so much to do with answering the question, how do you handle fear? How do you handle fear? How do we handle fear? Historically, or traditionally when we've read this story, we see Goliath as the embodiment of fear. And we see and we're encouraged to see ourselves in the sandals of David, who again is an inspiring example of how you go and you face your giant and you knock the giant down and, and you take care of business because the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? So they say. But there's so much more going on in the text here. Look at, look at what it says about what Goliath is wearing. Now, it's interesting, before we even read this, uh, this is really unique in ancient texts, manuscripts. Not often do they ever mention what someone is wearing, but there's a real specific purpose as to why the Bible unpacks and describes with great, uh, uh, great uh, detail what Goliath was wearing. It says, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat, a scale of armor, of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Okay, again, 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. Now, the javelin wasn't for throwing. Remember, if he's nine foot five or eight foot, he would likely be in the second row of the infantry because he would be able to look down over the front row of the soldiers and he would be able to just kill with the javelin. It was a stabbing uh, weapon goes on to say, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed about 600 shekels. That's about 20 pounds. Pretty heavy end. His shield bearer went ahead of him. It's describing Goliath and the great technological advancement, military paraphernalia that he had going into battle. 
Uh, in the ancient texts, as we look at this, it's very unusual to mention this, but what it's doing in the Bible, contrasting Goliath with David, very different. Very different. In fact, we can see how Goliath deals with fear, even by his words. You notice him, when, when Goliath dealing with fear in his own life. He says this uh, in verse 42. He said he looked David over. David, again, David takes to the field. David's been asking all the other soldiers of the Israelites, been saying, oh, okay, who's going to dispatch this, this Philistine who's defying the armies of God? And in passing, one of them, or some of the soldiers overhear him, tell Saul, David is brought to Saul. He's offered Saul's armor. He can't fit in it. And he goes down to the battlefield. And when he approaches Goliath, he said, Goliath says, he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. Why did he despise him? Because Goliath gets courage the same way many of us do in this world. We pump our own tires. We keep telling ourselves, I can do this. We do it through high esteem. And we try to elevate our esteem so we can minimize the size of whatever fearful event or moment or person that faces us. And Goliath does that. He's doing the comparison. He's doing the math. He despises David because David is small and he is big. He has the most technologically advanced armor in the world and weaponry in the world. David has none. David couldn't even handle Saul's armor. David comes as a shepherd boy. So he's out there with no armor. He's not trained like Goliath is, and he despises him. How can you send this boy to do battle with me? And he despises them in that moment. And he does, the next thing Goliath does is the same thing we try to do. Then he tries to banish his fears. You banish your fears. You ignore them. You visualize success. You can't visualize defeat. It's impossible. It can't happen. You pump your tires up. I can do this. You confront your giant. We do this all the time. This is Goliath's way. This is the world's way. Build yourself up. Confront that giant. Banish those fears. The only problem with this is if you banish your fears, you're out of touch with reality. Because this world is a difficult place. There are bad things that happen in this world. You know, we tell our children often when we're growing up as parents, uh, you know, you don't need to be afraid or everything's going to be okay. But we even know that it's not always going to be okay. We kind of know that already. We know that, listen, even people who suffer with paranoia, who always think people are after them, someday someone could be after them, right? The, the, the fact is, in this world, bad things do happen. And it's logical to have some measure of fear when we face things in life. The reason why Goliath failed, by the way, was precisely because he had too high self-esteem and because he banished all his fears. See, he went into battle that day and he didn't recognize that he was facing a child, a boy, with a sling. 
And a three-inch diameter stone in a sling can be slung at 60 miles per hour. It was a lethal weapon. David had a lethal weapon. But here's the interesting thing. When you look at what Goliath did, he went into battle, and he didn't even go into battle with his shield up. His shield bearer still had the shield. In fact, he says these words. He says, do you think I'm a dog? I'm going to feed you to the vultures, he yells to David. See, Goliath cannot visualize defeat. He can't. He was defeated because he was out of touch with reality. Bad things can happen. And if you get rid of all of your fears, you're not a wise person anymore. It's those giant fears that demobilize us and giant anxieties that keep us from enjoying and moving into the things God has for us. Those are things that need to be addressed. But having healthy fears in life is important. David, Goliath didn't fear David, and that was a problem. He should have. He went, he didn't even have a shield. He apparently he had not seen Star Trek, where you know you never go into battle unless you have your shields up, right? And, and, and Goliath went in, and he's minimizing the effect of David, the possibility of David being successful. He is minimizing that. And he's approaching fear like we do in life, often with a burst of adrenaline and a burst of energy where we confront our fears. Just like if a house was burning down and someone needed to be rescued and you go in there and you do the rescuing and there's this burst of energy and burst of fear or a burst of courage. The problem with that, it's not sustainable in life. It's good. It, it can work when your house is burning down, but you don't, that, that's a limited adrenaline-based courage. That doesn't help you deal with a, with a possible, uh, a doctor's verdict of that you have terminal cancer or that there's a possibility of it and you have months of waking, waiting through that. Where do you find courage for the long haul? Where do you find courage when, when things don't look like they're turning around? Where do you find that type of courage that you're able to confront those giants? A few weeks ago, we looked at the life of Esther, and she's, she's one of the great heroines in Scripture, is she not? And Esther is facing a, a, a possibility of losing her life by going into the king's chamber. And she says, utters those famous words. She said, if I perish, I perish. And you look at the courage of this woman, you think, how do we get that type of courage as we go into 2018? It's not a pump. She didn't go into the king's chamber going, you can do this, Esther. You can do this, Esther. You can do this, Esther. She didn't go in there based off an adrenaline surge. She had this deep, profound courage that overcame fear in the middle of that. Where do you get that type of courage? Because that's the type of courage that interests me. That's the type of courage we need as we go into 2018. Well, we do it, we find it in the story. But we find it in the story by putting ourselves and identifying with a group in the story that gets missed and lost all the time. It's not by identifying with David David is not this great example. He's not the inspiration. He's a champion. He's a deliverer in the story. We do it by identifying with the soldiers who are too afraid to take on Goliath. That's me. With wobbly, knocking knees. And that's you. We do it by identifying 
with the soldiers in Israel who were unwilling to confront Goliath. Because it's only there when we see ourselves as having been scared or lacking courage that we can ask the question, what does God give to frighten people? And the story tells us right away. What does God give to frighten people? What did God give to those frightened Israelite stories, uh, soldiers? What did he give to them? He gave them David. He gave them a champion. He gave them a deliverer. He didn't give them an example because David doesn't say after he kills Goliath, okay, guys, now you guys go and do the same thing. Doesn't do that. He gives them a deliverer and a champion. And it's fascinating how David approaches it. Goliath tries to approach it from his strength. He's going to power up over the giants of whatever fears he may have. He has this courage that blinds him to the possibility that he could suffer defeat. David comes at it very differently. David saves them through his weakness. It's interesting, isn't it, in the story? I love this story. David actually saves them through his weakness because he's so small. Because it's, it's because he was so laughable to Goliath. It's because his weakness caused Goliath to be unguarded. It's because he was a shepherd boy. It's precisely because David was weak that he was so strong in this moment. And he saved them through that weakness. Had Saul taken to the field, Goliath probably would have had his shield up. Had Saul confronted the giant, uh, the, the giant probably would have gone in with his mind and heart set on defeating Saul. But David, he trivialized him to his own detriment, to his own loss, to his own death. In that moment, when you see where David and Goliath contrast each other. David saves them through his weakness. And the second thing is, David saves them as a substitute champion. Now, this is fascinating in the history as it's being represented in ancient cultures. Again, what Goliath is doing is not unheard of in those days. Instead of seeing massive casualties happening across both nations, one champion would fight one champion. And whoever wins, if David loses, Israel loses. If Goliath loses, the Philistines lose. Here is David. He's a substitute champion. He's a substitute champion for the people of God. David wasn't fighting for his people. He was fighting as his people. His future and their future were inextricably connected. In a very real sense, they were in him as he took to the field that day. Friends, in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, it has this great list of people, of heroes of the faith. People who showed extraordinary courage in the face of fear. It says this, it says over and over in chapter 11, it says, remember, and then it inserts a name there. Remember Noah. Remember Moses. And in there it says, remember David. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it moves immediately from remembering all of these great heroes of faith to say this to each of us, but you fix your eyes, not on David, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, and this is a little Greek word, 
many of your Bibles it's translated author. It also means champion. Very interesting. The champion and perfecter of our faith. The author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on your champion, on your deliverer, on the one who goes before you. Fix your eyes on your champion. Here's what it means to be a Christian, friends, to be a follower of Jesus. It means Jesus saved us through his weakness. He became weak so we could become strong. It's amazing. He saved us. The enemy underestimated him. The enemy thought they had killed him. The enemy thought it was over, and it was just beginning. It was just beginning. It was actually through his weakness that we are made strong. David saved his people from physical death. Jesus saves us from eternal death. David only risked his life for his people. Jesus gave his life for all people, all people. And if you believe in Jesus, here's the amazing thing about being a follower of Jesus. And it's, 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 not, it's barely comprehensible that all of the great spoils of the victory he won are transferred to us. They're all transferred to us. Just like those Israelites, the scaredy cats, the ones who are on the sidelines while David takes to the field of Goliath, all of these seasoned soldiers that were too intimidated to face the giant, every one of them that day got a great victory. They got the spoils of victory and they got it not based on their effort, but based on David's effort. Friends, let me ask you this. What is your greatest fears? What's your greatest nightmare? You know, most of them come in three quadrants for, for us. Many of them come in the quadrant of we fear losing love or never finding love. A lot of fear in that quadrant. Bro losing relationship. For some of us, it's the fear of losing wealth and the security that wealth promises us, a buffer between us and hardship. For many of us, maybe all of us in this room, it's the fear of the loss of life, of sickness, debilitating sickness, maybe the loss of life. But friends, the nightmare behind all nightmares is alienation from God. See, if, again, I don't know where you're at today, but if there is a God, and if he created you, and he created you to know him, I mean, the greatest thing, the greatest fear would be being lost from our creator. Because in that reality, that's where we experience the ultimate loneliness, the ultimate poverty, the ultimate penalty. So Jesus, our champion, our savior, took to the field. And he purchased our freedom. And he paid for our penalty of sin on the cross. It's because of what he's done. And then all of his glory, all of his peace, all of his victory was then transferred to us. It's very unfair. It's the most incredible exchange ever. We give him our sin and we get his victory. We, we give him our fear and our, our fear and our lostness, and he gives us his peace. I, I mean, it's incredible the transfer that happened in that moment for all those who chose Jesus. We didn't even lift a finger. 
And you know what this means? This is incredible what it means. It means this. It means that your future joy is guaranteed. Wherever you might be, wherever you might find yourself today, your future joy is guaranteed. I mean, true courage is not the absence of fear. True courage is the presence of joy even when there are fearful giants in the land. It's not self-confidence. It's self-forgetfulness so that we can know the joy is always on the way. In Psalm chapter 30, David, the same guy we're talking about here, when he was a little older, a little more mature, he penned these words, words that I think all of us at different points in our life find encouraging. These words said this, weeping may come in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Joy is always on the way. It's always on the way, no matter how dark it is. I mean, Jesus knew this. This is one of the reasons why I just love that our God came to earth. Because he was fully able to identify us. When he was in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was scared, when fear was gripping him, and he reached out to the Father and he said, Father, if this, pass, this cup can pass, let it pass. I don't want to partake in this. Why? But it says in Hebrews that the joy set before him, he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. There was even a joy and a courage while he was facing the greatest giant of fear. Friends, think about the debt that is owed. The only debt that can truly destroy us has been paid. Think about sickness. The only true sickness that can destroy us has been healed. It is sin. And it means that no matter what happens here on earth, joy is on the way. It means this. No matter how terrible things might look, evil is always temporary. Fear and giants are always temporary. Friends, the antidote to fear is faith. And throughout this story, you see people putting faith in a man named Saul. And what happens when Saul couldn't answer the bell? Well, hope began to go. Fear rose. They put faith in technology and armor and strength and and, and size, and yet it was misplaced faith. We place our faith in the author and perfecter of our faith our champion who took to the field and won the victory for us. We need to remind ourselves that God is able. God is able. And we need to fill our mouth with praise so fear can be banished in those moments. I'd like to pray with you this morning. I wonder if you wouldn't mind if this is helpful to you. I find it helpful to close my eyes when I'm praying just to focus, and I'd invite you to do the same if that helps you. And here's something I've done in all three services that I'd invite you in this moment to consider. You might want to even hold your hands out in front of you and just think of what are those fears that seem to control you? What are those things that keep you up at night? Is it the fear of grandchildren or children that have made some decisions and maybe you don't even know where they are today. 
and fear grips your heart. And the giant yells and shows up morning and evening and reminds you you're not in control. Is it the fear of your health? And maybe you feel like something's wrong even in your body right now, but you're too afraid to go to the doctor? Is it the fear of not measuring up at school? Is it the fear of not measuring up in life? How are you going to make a living? How are you going to make a way forward? Is that fear ruminating in your thinking all the time, distracting you from doing life? Is it the fear of loss? Maybe you have many things in your life right now. You, maybe you have people who love you. Maybe you have financial means. Maybe you even have your health. But you constantly live in this anxiety that, that this could be taken away. Is that your fear? Whatever it is, friends, just identify what that fear is. And then let's invite Jesus, our champion, Jesus, we come to you today with those things that distract us, those things that can even control us, those things we're afraid of. And God, we admit our own frailty and weakness today. And God, we are afraid sometimes. Some of us in this room, we're afraid of getting older. We're afraid of the things that come with that. We're afraid of, of death. But we remind ourselves today, God, that you are our champion, that you are the one who cuts down the giants of fear in our life. And the things we should fear most in this world, what sin does and its toxicity, Lord, you have given a remedy. So Father, we lean in with confidence to the work of your son, Jesus. He's our savior. He's our champion. And God, we give you our fears today. We release them to you, God. And God, we pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh perspective, God. Lord, that when we find ourselves confronted by the giant of fear, may faith rise in us, God. Not in our abilities, not in our strengths, but in the strength of our great God who is able to do exceeding abundantly more than we could ask or even imagine. We place our faith in you. The antidote to fear is faith. And we place our faith in our champion who's made us more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We do this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.